So I talked about a theme played out here in the first 10 verses of chapter 7. Um, you, you've heard this phrase in many other contexts of the Bible, you know, that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Uh, it plays out a lot in, in God's Word. Uh, and so it plays here as well. And, and I'm so excited to, to talk about this, these first 10 verses. You know, you, you first read them and you think, okay, they're just introducing Ezra. It really has nothing to do with me. Um, you know, how can I apply this in my life? And where is the gospel in this? You know, that's what we try to do here at Sovereign Grace is, is really to preach the gospel in everything that we teach out of this Bible, out of this book. So sometimes it's difficult to find. But the sovereignty of God and, and man's responsibility undergird this particular text, verses 1 through 10. And I want to show you this morning how that plays out. I also want to start off with an illustration. Um, this is a story, and I don't know if you all have had an opportunity to meet Anne um, I'm gonna I'm, I hope I pronounced this right. Home Hazen. Okay. <laughs> I asked your mom earlier. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so Anne, uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to to meet her and hear her story, that's going on in her life right now. It's an amazing story. I'm gonna try to to give you a little glimpse of it. I hope that I do it justice if I, but please see her, talk to her because it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing story. Um, and, and the story involves her daughter, Amelia, who uh, was diagnosed with kidney failure. Now with kidney failure, you know that you have to get a new kidney. You have to get another kidney. You go, or you go into dialysis for the rest of your life. It's a very, very hard and tough life tough situation to be in, right? So uh, most people who have kidney failure go on to a, a list and they wait for a kidney. And that, that list is long. There's many people waiting. And um, many people wait for many, many years in order, before they you know, even get a hint of a possibility of having a kidney for them. So their life is, is a struggle. It's hard. Right? Well, so um, Anne and her daughter Amelia find out that she's got kidney failure and she needs a kidney. In this process, in this time, she's now returning, and Anne is returning to work. Um, it's after COVID, and she's returning to work, and um, she's, she's, um, she's struggling because of her life right now, what she's going through, right? And so she's in meetings and she's, you know, making presentations and, and sometimes she has to stop because she just starts crying. She gets so emotional, you know, from her life and what's going on. Well, at this time, there is a, uh, a, someone new in the office that's come in. Um, he is, um, he's like a, a, maybe like an apprentice or, or something like that. Yeah. So he's, he's, he hasn't, he doesn't know Anne. Anne doesn't know him. Uh, but he hears the, her story from some of the people in the, in the office. And he starts to pray. He prays about 
Anne's daughter, Amelia, who needs uh, um, a kidney. And he hears God. He hears from God. And he goes to Anne. He said, Anne, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I believe and I feel in my heart that God has led me to give your daughter one of my kidneys. One of my kidneys. Now, Anne is thinking while she's hearing this, obviously she's thinking, oh, I got to say no. I, I can't accept this. I don't even know this person. I don't know if this is going to work. I, you know, um, who is this person sitting in front of me saying he wants to offer my daughter one of his kidneys? A life-saving operation, Right? And so all the, the whole time she's thinking, you know, I, I, I should say no. I got to say no. But at the same time, she's thinking God brought him here for a particular reason and, and a specific reason. And, and if he says and he believes in his heart that God is telling him to give one of his kidneys to his daughter, her daughter, then how can she say no? Right? So... They agree. We don't even, he doesn't even know what blood type he is. <laughs> you know, we don't even know if there's going to be a match. So he goes and gets tested, and he comes back, and it's a match. So this week, she's going to go and get a new kidney from this man that she barely knew, you know, maybe less than a year ago, an amazing an amazing story, and, and the events, she details the events, so, so please talk to Anne about her, this story. It's, it's truly, I love hearing, I've heard it, heard it twice, and each time I am just struck by what God does, the sovereign work of our Lord, our Father, God, right? The sovereign work. And then, this young man's responsibility to, to do what God has asked him to do. To take one of his own kidneys and offer it up. What an amazing, an amazing story. Again, God's sovereignty. Bringing this man to do this. And then the man saying, yes, Lord, I hear you and I will obey. What a story. Amen. So the title for my, my message this morning is God Raised Up Ezra. God Raised Up Ezra. I'll go through uh, a few points. I won't, I won't mention them now, but as I, as I go through them, I'll, I'll make sure that you, you hear them so that if you're taking notes, you, you can write them down. Um, so let's just go right into beginning with point number one. God Raised Up Ezra. That's my first point. Verses 1 through 6a, Now I won't read the names again, so I'll just breeze over them, but I'm going to read the text again just to remind you. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, and this, that's where I've skipped over the names, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, 
skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So, we have in the introduction of Ezra, in the description of Ezra, we have at the very beginning his lineage, his family tree. Right? He's the son of. And then they give all these names that are difficult to pronounce. I had to listen to a recording of this text over and over and over. And I, and I probably messed up some of the names. I don't remember now. Artaxerxes. I don't know why I have trouble with that one. But anyway. So, so his lineage shows and represents that he is in a line of priesthood. Now, that's, that's important at that time for these people to know what his lineage is and the fact that his lineage is of a priest, the chief priest, Aaron. Okay? This gives the people hope. You know, it strengthens their hope knowing that he was of such important lineage. Now, this isn't even the full list. If you, go to, if you go to 1 Chronicles 6, there are a few more names that are listed in there. Apparently during, during the copying of this to Ezra, some of the names were left out because of duplication. Okay? I think there were like seven names that were dropped. Um, now, because of the length of this list, it vouches for the importance of this man. It vouches for the importance of this man. He, he's an important person, even though we're, we're now in chapter 7, we're finally getting to hear about him. But he is important for the time and what, has, what is, is ha- transpiring and what is happening in this time. It's important because God's sovereign, sovereignty has directed that this man, at this time, will lead his people. Now, his lineage is important, right? The fact that he's, you know, son of Aaron. But, but Aaron, like Moses, weren't superhuman people. They sinned just like you and me. However, the significance of this lineage is that it shows God's faithfulness to his people. It shows he raises up leaders, for his people, just like he did in the first Exodus. He raised up Moses. Actually, this list tells us more about God than it does about Ezra's lineage. It shows us that God providentially, meaning exactly when needed, and sovereignly, meaning God purposed and planned, raises up leaders to lead his people. He is involved in our lives. So Ezra is of the line of a priesthood. We also are a priesthood. First Peter 2.5 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2.5, to be a holy priesthood. So we are also of a good lineage. We are also priests. Now what's important to note here, 
with relation to Ezra's lineage is that we do not have to be of a certain priestly lineage. If you were born from a godly family and is considered of a holy priesthood, then great, awesome. But it doesn't mean anything if you were born from a family who is not godly. Because our priesthood has been predestined and ordained by God from before the foundations of the world. Just like it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 6, 3 through 6, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. His sovereignty, God's sovereignty, his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, you and, you and me... We're believers in Jesus Christ, are a chosen race. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I loved the fact that we were singing this morning, Marvelous Light. It just, it, it affects me every time I sing that, that one of those choruses. Ooh, boy. I, I love that. I, I don't think Bill knew that I was actually going to reference that text in, in my message this morning. Okay. So we are a chosen race. And God has a plan for us. Just like he had a plan for Ezra, he raised up Ezra, knew what he would do. He had a plan, a purpose for him, for his people. God has a plan for you and for me as well. Since God chose you, he has a plan, a perfect plan for you. Now, don't get all crazy. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a priest, <laughs> Right? In the, in the natural sense. In other words, you all don't have to go to seminary and, and study and become uh, ministers, right? But it does involve us repenting, turning from our sin, and proclaiming His excellencies who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation through Jesus Christ. And we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, God raised up Ezra for a purpose, to lead his people at just the right time in his sovereign plan. 
God has raised us up too to receive salvation through his son and to be his witness to proclaim salvation through Jesus Christ. So there is purpose in what God does. There is his sovereignty, purpose, and then there's man's responsibility. So what is it that Ezra did? Having been raised up for a purpose by God, and how was he able to get it done? There was something that he was to do. How did he go about doing it? How did he get it done? Well, the only way he was able to get it done was the fact that because of the fact that Ezra had favor, and that's my second point. Ezra had favor. We see this in verse 6b the second part of, of, of verse 6, which says, And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Let me read that again. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was, uh, his God was on him. So, the, first of all, the king granted him all that he asked. Okay, so, for someone, first of, all, first of all, for being in a position where the king is granting things to you is actually a pretty big deal. You know, you can go up to, king, you can go up to the king and, and ask for something, and he may just have a bad day and said, you know, he may just say, off with his head. You know, it's a pretty scary thing to be able to go up to a king and ask for something, right? But he says here that the king granted him all that he asked. So he must have asked for more than one thing, right? Must have asked for several things. And then it says that the king granted him all those things, right? So, so he must have had a, bit, a, a somewhat of a relationship with the king in order to be able to stand in front of him and ask him for things, right? He was probably an official. He was an official in, in, the, in the Persian court, uh, maybe a diplomat or something like that, in order to, to even have access to the king's ear. Uh, even still, to make request of the king had to have been nerve-wracking for him. He probably was scared of, to ask these things because, I mean, who knows what the king's mood may have been at the time. But Ezra probably had to wait for the precise time to ask anything of the king, to give him the best advantage for a good response. I can imagine if, if Ezra is beginning to think, okay, I, need to, I, I would like to really go and minister to the people in Jerusalem uh, and where they're building the temple. You know, he's, already, he's thinking of these things already. So he needs to ask to be excused from the court, to be able to leave and go to Jerusalem you know, he's probably needing money and, and goods in order to make the trip and so forth and, and help and, and, su and such a what. You know, this, there's probably a, a good list of things that he's thinking he needs to ask the king for. So he's preparing. He's deciding when to ask the king and just how and when to ask him. So he gets the best advantage, the good response. He may not get everything he thinks. He may not get all that he asks. He may be turned down right, right out. King may say, no, you know what? I don't want you to leave, and I don't want you to go help them. So no, the answer is no. But the king granted him all that he asked. That is amazing. 
So even though he wasn't, you know, I mean, let me back up. Um, because he was a studied man, because Ezra studied the word, the, the Bible, he more than likely knew of the stories that were in the Bible, like the story of Joseph, who became second in command behind King Pharaoh and how he led, right? So even though he, Ezra wasn't second in command, he did know that it was important to address the king and how to address the king and, and make requests of him and that it could happen, right? Uh, but more importantly, he had favor with the king because the hand of the Lord was on him, and the king gave him everything that he asked for. This is what ultimately transpired of, of this whole idea of Ezra thinking, okay, I've got to approach the king. I want to do this. I feel like the Lord is leading me to do this. i got to approach the king, and i got to do it in a manner that doesn't upset him, doesn't cause him to go, you're asking for all these things. Oh my goodness, no, you can only have one. You know, he, he's thinking about all these things. And it's not, it probably there were many, many months that passed, weeks and months that passed before he, he got up the nerve to finally go up and ask the king. But he did. And because the hand of the Lord was on him, he had favor, and the king then granted him everything that he asked for. For the hand of the Lord was on him. So again, we see that together with God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, which is the part that Ezra played, and they worked together. Those things work together. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, they work together. The part that Ezra played was to act on the doors that were opened by God. You see, God opened the doors for, to allow, even to allow him to speak to the king. And then to ask him for all these things. God directed the king. Just like he directed the king Cyrus in, in chapter 1. Providing favor in the king's eyes this time was for Ezra. Now even though God's work was all behind the scenes, I mean it, was like, it wasn't like, like God was speaking directly to the king and saying, hey, I've got this boy, he's coming up, he needs to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to need a lot of help, he's going to ask for, you for a whole bunch of things, and I want you to grant him all those things. He wasn't speaking to the king like that. He was sovereignly, though, directing the king's heart to soften and to know about these people that were going to Jerusalem to build the temple. And so when Ezra came and asked for these things, the king says, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I grant you all that you want. Wow. Now, unlike with Ezra, who had favor with the king because God's hand was on him, we do not have favor with God because of our sin against him. Therefore, our favor had to come at a price. Our favor had to come at a price. And Jesus has bought us favor. A propitiation for our sins through his atoning death, turning God's wrath towards us into favor. That's the only way we were going to get God's favor. 
is through a price. A price paid by Jesus Christ. I love this word propitiation. There's two verses that it, 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 it uses that word. 1 John 2, verse 2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation. 1 John 4, 10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a word that means turning wrath or turning dislike into favor. The first thing to note about all this turning God's wrath into favor is that we had nothing to do with it. Other than receive it as a gift. Romans 3, 23-25 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So think about this. God, loving us, put forward his own son to die, to atone for our sins, to be the propitiation by his blood. In other words, putting forward his son to turn his wrath away from us and onto him. We did not initiate it. We did not suggest it. We, we did not even conceive it. It was God who put forward his only begotten son as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, by his sacrifice on the cross, by his atoning death, was God's wrath turned from us and we found favor in his eyes. But if God's wrath was turned from us, it had to go somewhere. If it was turned from us, it had to go somewhere. It was all placed on Jesus. Jesus took on our sins and then took on the full weight of God's wrath on himself to pay the penalty for sin. And it wasn't like Jesus was just another sinner dying for you know, a, a group of people or dying for his fellow man. No, the, the sacrifice had to be a spotless lamb. It had to be someone who knew no sin. The sacrifice had to be sufficient. And Jesus fits the bill. A sinless man taking on our sin and paying the price of death as a penalty. God's only begotten Son, whom He put forward, it took this much. There was no other way to reconcile man to the Father. The sacrifice had to be great. It had to be great. And the second thing to note is that it was sufficient. Jesus' atoning death was sufficient to turn God's wrath into favor. Can you imagine if Jesus' death was only 
partially effective? Oh, um, you over here, you guys, you're saved. Uh, you're good to go. Uh, I'm sorry. I know you tried. Uh, you asked, but um, <laughs> uh, wasn't enough. Jesus' death wasn't enough. It was good for them, but not, not enough for you guys. Sorry. Sorry. Or, or what if, okay, you're good for another 240 days. You're good for another 260, but then after that, no more sinning, because after that, you can't, you can't get in. There's, it's not enough. It sounds silly, doesn't it? But God's, you know, God's wrath was so strong against sin, and Jesus' perfect death was so good, it completely eradicated the wrath of God. Completely for us for an eternity. For an eternity for sins past, present, and even future sins. Jesus paid the price. And it was sufficient. We don't have to worry about that. So we've seen that God sovereignly raised up Ezra to lead his people in Jerusalem. Likewise, he raises up us up too to spread the good news of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. We've seen that Ezra had favor because God's hand was on him. Likewise, we have favor through Jesus Christ because of what he did for us on the cross. We've seen God's sovereignty at work in the life of Ezra as he raises him up to lead his people. And we've seen some of what Ezra did, man's responsibility, so that it works with God's plan such that it accomplishes his goal. But the most telling portion of the work that Ezra did towards his goal is shown in verse 10, which brings us to my third and final point. Ezra arrives and was ready. Ezra arrives and was ready. I'm going to read starting in verse 7, but the, the most important verse is verse 10 that goes with this, this portion of my sermon. And God's word says, And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. So these are people doing their part, their responsibility to hear from God or as they hear from God to go and build the temple. It takes all sorts of people to do this. Right? It takes laborers, workers, administrators, overseers, lots of different types of people to do this. So a lot of different types of people went. Verse 8, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, so that he started his trip. And on the first day of the fifth month, so it took five months, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. And here's verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart. I don't have to say any more. 
That right there is the most important part of verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart There are only a few other places I found where someone sets their heart. Like this, 1 Chronicles 22, 19. Now set your mind and your heart to seek the Lord your God. Several others in 2 Chronicles, one in Deuteronomy and one in Job. So there are very few places where, where really people are setting their heart to do something. Now Ezra here is, in verse 10 we're told that he sets his heart to do this. What is he doing? Well, let me read the rest of the, the verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This says so much about our part in the, in the overlying theme, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The remainder of the verse after for Ezra had set his heart, the remainder of the verse, all that it says there would mean nothing, would mean nothing, or certainly would have been less effective if Ezra had not first set his heart. If he had not set his heart, let's think of some of the things that could have happened. Say, you know, he gets there and he sees the temple is just, it's not going well. The people are grumbling, complaining because, you know, they don't have this, they don't have that. And immediately he says, ah, you know what, I don't want to deal with this. I'm out of here. If Ezra had not set his heart, he could have gotten there, you know, started work, started the people to, to, to you know, learn about God's word. He started to teach people. And then what we're going to learn later on is that there was this, this problem with marriages. There were, there were mixed marriages. They were, they were marrying people outside of their faith. This was not a good thing. So it became a problem, and they, they presented, and they came to Ezra and said, hey, look, we got this major problem. Now, at that point, if, if Ezra had not set his heart, if he had not heard from God and said, I'm, I'm going to set my heart to do this, when that problem arose, which is a, a big problem, he could have said, you know what? Ugh. Stay with your wives. Stay with, with, with the sin that y'all are doing. I can't, I can't handle this. I'm out of here. But no, Ezra set his heart to do this because he knew God. He, he knew. He, he had been studying the law of the Lord. He had been studying the Bible. He knew what was in the Bible. He knew what God had done in the past and what he could do in the future. He was excited about this. And he said, you know what? I'm hearing from God to do this. I'm going to set my heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. When he says, and to do it, it means to live it. He says, I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to live it. He set his heart. Let me ask. Have you set your heart to anything of God? Ooh. 
Have you set your heart to anything of God? Have you said, I know this is true. I'm going to set my heart to it. I'm going to do it. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. When was the last time you picked up the Bible and read from it? Have you set your heart to study his word? It's not difficult. Ezra set his heart to do it. To do what? Well, he was studying the word of God, so it implies that he set his heart to live by the word of God. Are you living by the word of God? Have you set your heart to live by the word of God? If you're saying you're going to live by the word of God and yet you do not study the Bible, do you think you will be effective at living by the word of God? Probably not. We need to first open the word of God, read it, study it, meditate on it, let God's word affect our lives. then we can live by it. Ezra set his heart to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. A natural expression of studying God's word and living God's word is to teach God's word. Because as you study his word and as you live his word, you gain experience and wisdom in studying and living by his word. And a natural expression of doing this is to teach others what you've learned. A natural expression is to teach others what you've studied and lived. Some of us do that. Some of us may do that as part of of being called into ministry. But most of us will do that naturally as we live among others. And that can be, you know, in a church setting, Bible study, discipleship groups, you know, where we're naturally living with others and communicating with others, expressing and teaching what we've learned from God's word. Oh, yeah, I remember uh, in Romans it says this. And then we talk about it and we learn from it. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem and was ready because he had set his heart to do what God had raised him to do. Are you ready for what God has for you? Ezra was raised by God to do his will at the proper time in history, in God's timing. He was influential and he had favor with the king and he was ready when it was time for him to act on what God had placed before him. This was God's sovereignty at work in cooperation with man's responsibility to act when God opens a door.
be ready to act by preparing yourself beforehand and then, then walk through the door that God opens for you so that he can use you in his grand and perfect plan. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for teaching us through the book of Ezra as, as we learn now about this man who was raised by you. Sovereign, perfect timing in you bringing Ezra to these people to lead them. It's also sovereign, perfect timing as you lead us and raise us to do your will, Father God. And so help us to be obedient to that. Help us to, to act. When we hear from you, Father God, and you open a door for us, that we would act and walk through the door, having been ready because we've studied the word, we've studied your word, we live your word, Father. Help us to do that. Prepare us. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing in response.